Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital multimedia magazine and website where we review the top books and films having an impact on the global awakening. On this show, we explore the many faces of consciousness and action, and our guest today is Ruth Miller, a Renaissance woman who bridges ancient wisdom and modern science. Ruth is a prolific author, and over the past decades, her work has ranged from professional futuring to new thought ministry, from consulting to governments and nonprofits to spiritual counseling, from teaching advanced computer modeling methods to teaching metaphysics and permaculture. She is the visionary behind the Gaia Living Systems Institute and their training program for creating sustainable communities that are harmonious with the planet and the human spirit. She also happens to be one of my very favorite people on the planet, and I am so pleased to have her on the show. Welcome, Ruth. Oh, my, what a great welcome. (laughs) It's a delight (laughs) to be here. I always enjoy being with you, Miriam. Tell us about the Gaia Living Systems Institute. What is it and why now? All right. We have finally come around in our culture to recognizing that we can't talk about uh, how we do things without talking about how we are and who we are. So what has emerged out of our recognition of that, and this is a small group of us on the Oregon coast, What's emerged is something that says we need to be talking about consciousness as well as technology. We need to be talking about how social systems are guided by what's going on in the spiritual and mental processes as much as we're talking about how they are guided by population and ecological pressure and technological development. So what we realized was there wasn't a place that was integrating those two ways of thinking. And more than that, there were very few places that were saying sustainable community is great and it's only possible in the context of a sustainable culture or a set of values and beliefs and assumptions that would allow for a sustainable culture. So we're integrating all of these concepts in one training program. We decided to create a two-year program. The first year would uh, give people the tools that they needed to be able to work in community, work in a planning department perhaps, work with groups that are forming community, and give them specific tools to do that. And the second year would give them the capacity to go out and facilitate any form of community anywhere into toward, moving toward a sustainable, spiritually, as well as ecologically uh, developing community. Well, that's quite an overview. Um, I want to start by asking you a question that people are always asking me. How do you define consciousness? <laughs> you know, I was doing our introductory uh, training, introduction session uh, in a group the other day, and someone sat in the back and said, all right, so what is consciousness? <laughs> and in the context of what we're talking about, there's two levels or two ways of thinking about consciousness. The one that we're focusing on is the internal set of beliefs, values, assumptions, emotions, expectations that people bring to any given moment. 
but we recognize that that's in a larger context, which is the field of uh, the consciousness, the field of all of those things and the archetypes and the past and the present and the potential of the future that is for that particular group of humanity, for humanity as a whole, and then there's the larger field out of which the universe is formed. Well, as you say, it uh, is predicated on the values and beliefs that we presumably acquire as we're making our way from the womb to the tomb. Oh, marvelous. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because, you know, each of us, we can talk about consciousness in terms of soul, in terms of spirit, in terms of mind, if you want. The, the, um, the current science tends to focus on mind as awareness. When it says you are conscious or and when, it, when scientists generally say conscious or consciousness, they're saying this person is awake and aware of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. They may be aware of themselves in their surroundings. But that's about as far as most scientists will go. Um, there is a growing body of science, as you are so well aware, that is saying, oh, there's a bit more than that. And I like Jung's model best for that, where he talks about the collective consciousness and then the you know, expanded consciousness beyond that. And the collective consciousness would be the his, the, the, the totality of humanity's trips from womb to tomb, if you will, uh, that we are drawing on all the time. I like that phrase. Thanks. Can I borrow it? <laughs> Absolutely. Excuse <clears throat> me. Um, yeah, well, there, there's the collective consciousness, but there's also the consciousness of the collective, the consciousness of our relationship beyond our immediate sphere. And I think that is one of the things that is most, most important and yet almost more difficult to educate people to because they, they, the blinkers tend to be very tightly focused. Well put. And I think that's really the part that we're beginning to integrate into this training program that I don't think is thought about elsewhere. If we are to be able to live sustainably on this planet, we have to be able to honor that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And I think that's what you're tapping into when you're talking about that, that there is this thing we call spirit that is so far beyond um, what we are normally aware of and yet is really the basis for beingness and the basis for um, the individual's essence, it is the individual's essence, and the, you know, the, the source of uh, all the form and energy that we see. You know, what, what occurred to me was the formula for um, the hypotenuse from memory. It's mm-hmm. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Mm-hmm. If we are... Um, whatever we define ourselves to be, um, uh, publisher, female, uh, Oregonian, whatever, um, we, in order to expand our definition of self, 
to something that is inclusive, we need to make some kind of mental shift. We need something that will crack open that perspective from the very local to not only the global but the universal. And I think that is really is the challenge facing us today. I think as as Western Empire culture, that's absolutely the truth. Um, you know, the, that that culture, the culture in which we are raised and you know to which we are enculturated, really, uh, is has given us a model, a way of thinking, a set of values, beliefs, expectations, and assumptions that says each of us is an individual and what matters is what we physically experience and if we are in collective it's only so that individually we can maximize our physical experience and perhaps the emotional experience to go along with it but that's only sometimes <laughs> and that has been proving itself to be very inadequate I mean, we see a huge issues around mental illness and around emotional illness we see you know undiagnosed depression and etc associated with that mindset when people wake up to something larger than they it almost doesn't seem to matter which tradition they wake up to it in they begin to live a much more vibrant life they feel a new kind of energy and vitality and those other mental and emotional issues seem to pass away so in our culture that's a huge issue in other cultures they look at us and they go are you crazy <laughs> how can you not feel that how can you not know that you know uh, we have been dealing in, in, in the news and in in the sort of global conflict arena with the whole field of terrorism and particularly Islamic uh, fundamentalism, Islamic terrorism. It, 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 terrorism in the name of Islam, which is not necessarily reflective of the values of Islam. Well put, thank you. Hasten to add. Um, but it is my belief interpretation, if you will, that the, the, the thing that you said earlier about identifying with something greater, finding meaning in identification with something greater is really what is motivating them. Absolutely. And when we have a global scene where, uh, what, 90% of the world's wealth is held in the, the hands of 5% of the world's population, um, give or take a percent or two either way. <laughs> um, and when our political system is polarized uh, over the issues of, of having your, the, the freedom to create your own wealth and keep it versus the um, obligation to take care of the weak and needy and, and sick among us, those seem to be um, very, very polarized positions. And we need to 
come up with, I don't know whether it's language, ways, devices, means somehow to bridge that gap. Any thoughts? Absolutely. And I think part of that is to recognize that we can change the way we can change the way the culture functions i think and that's a huge part of why guy exists we can change the way the culture is acting on the surface that then allows these other beliefs and ideas to begin to become normal what's happening right now is we have many of us are living in two two value systems two kinds of consciousness you will, even two states of consciousness. We enter into the marketplace and we get caught up in the marketplace consciousness. We come back into our spiritual center or our home or our beloved community and we're in a different state of consciousness and we, we bring a whole different set of values and beliefs and expectations to that. Um, Michael Lerner talks about that in his mm-hmm. Wisdom Tacoon. So we have these two states of consciousness with whole different sets of values and beliefs and and more and more we're feeling drawn to that which reflects home and community and you know recognizing that somehow there's this marketplace state as well what i think we can begin to do is say let's act as if we are always in that set of values and that state of consciousness and that set of expectations and culture that we call home and community and see if we can't design some marketplace options that fit that. And a huge part of what we're doing in our training program is giving people awareness that there are options that fit that. There are options that allow us to be in an economic system, for example, based on our spiritual values. There are options that allow us to develop technology based on our ecological values or our sense of connection with the mother, the earth, the nature. And so that's stage one, is waking people up to, you could make that choice. And you could choose to act from this set of values and assumptions that you prefer to live in that give you life and vitality instead of this other set. Absolutely. I think I think violence erupts when people believe there are no other options. Yeah. So if we can start making options visible and begin to have people know that they can choose them with impunity, know that they can choose them safely and actually experience greater life doing that, we'll start seeing less violence. And I think that's why your initiative of actually creating communities is so important because what you're doing is building demonstrable alternatives. It's like Bucky Fuller said, you can only change existing reality by creating a new model that makes the old model obsolete. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, people used to ask me to attend various kinds of demonstrations, and I would usually say no. And they would always be disturbed and distressed when I did. <laughs> and and then later I heard that Mother Teresa had the same attitude I did. <laughs> Don't ask me to spend my time demonstrating against something. Give me an opportunity to create something that is in the direction of what we all want. 
The other thing that's needed for this shift is for people not only to have choices, but to look at the consequences of the status quo. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Someone once asked me what what I have taught in colleges and universities, and I, you know, and I kind of went down the list. And at such and such a school, I taught oh computer modeling and science and tech, society and technology. And in another college, I taught futures and science for non scientists and science technology and society and in another college I taught marketing and, and uh, evaluation of uh, you know business and, and staff and, and and so on and programs and oh and technology and society <laughs> and what I realized was that that has that set of coursework that is called technology and society is the set of coursework that teaches people how to recognize if I do this, this is my, you know, this is going to happen, and these things might happen. If I do that, if I choose this instead, then these things are going to happen, and these things might happen beyond that. So to begin to recognize that there are consequences, and there are further consequences, what are called in the business secondary and tertiary impacts <laughs> of the things that we do, the policies that we do, the technologies we develop. My, my PhD actually focused on assessing the impacts of emerging technologies and policies, and you know, doing that in ways that were a little more realistic than had been done in the past. Well, we see that so, so clearly when we look at energy policy, because oh, yeah. the... Uh, you know, the profit motive seems to be the only criterion by which these technologies are evaluated. And it's the taxpayer, it's unborn generations, it's, it's uh, children and the weak who are bearing the brunt of these, uh, of ignoring the, the ill effects that we're generating. Mm-hmm. Same with agriculture. We've not um, been very thoughtful in our culture, no. <laughs> our culture says now is the only thing that matters, and any any issues that emerge are, you know, they'll, they'll be handled later. There was a, a very well-known futurist back in the 70s and 80s, I got to spend some time with him, named Herman Kahn. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and his attitude was, don't worry about it. We'll come up with a technological solution. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't buy it. I haven't seen it in my lifetime. You know, part of what I was doing when I was, you know, working as a futurist, as a consultant, I was also working in the community as a solar energy provider and appropriate technology uh, encourager, if you will. And... Um, you know, we had tools and understandings back then, and I'm talking the mid-70s here when I was first getting into this, in any kind of work. And we knew then what was needed and how it was needed and what the long-term implications were of all these paths that were before us, and we have not taken them. We have not well, taken to- the paths that had the consequences that were least damaging, let me put it that way. <laughs> Yes, because the, the the paths that are least damaging are probably also the paths that are least profitable. 
in the immediate term, they are the most profitable. And that was what I I always was having trouble understanding. (laughs) So there's that sense that we're supposed to give up, you know, a lifetime of profits for immediate benefits. Yeah, well, this is a subject that I would like to go into more deeply, but we have to take a break at the moment. We will, however, be back very shortly with my guest, Ruth Miller. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. See straight and save. These days, everyone seems to see things differently. But from your eyes, you can see straight and save. Right now, get glasses online at 70% off at Glasses USA. There's a 100% guarantee, too, on top brand men, women, multifocal, and even prescription sunglasses. Visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Glasses USA, and you will see straight and save. HealthyLife.net, the positive radio network. I'm Miriam Nice speaking with Ruth Miller about our future, really our future as a planet and our future as a society. And before the break, we were talking about long-term um, versus short-term profits. And I was reminded of when I was working in the manufacturing sector, and I could never understand how uh, companies were so focused on the next quarter's um, report, you know, to the stock market 
um, that they would only take those decisions that could show up on the bottom line within the next three months. And so often that was detrimental to their long-term growth. Now, expanding that mentality um, up from the stock market into, um, you know, the, the global scene, we still have that short-term mentality, although I do believe that it really it is driven by the stock market, by this, this game of smoke and mirrors that the financial services sector is playing with the lives of the, of the world, really. Um, the more I think about it, the more I really think that... Um, they are really bearing a very large proportion of the culpability for this kind of thinking. What do you think, Ruth? That sounds right on to me. That I remember Margaret Mead used to say, in America, long term is the next business quarter. Yeah. And you know, Margaret Mead's an anthropologist and, you know, and studied archaeology. She knows better. And so it was always a little ironic to her that this this incredible place that we you know have created this this you know marvelous set of opportunities that we've developed that in America had to be really foreshortened in that way um, because it meant that so many things got lost. I remember looking at Japanese companies, and they would do, you know, five- and ten-year plans. Um, and yet our Native American brothers and sisters talk about to the seventh generation, so there's a just such a dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. You were going to say. Mm-hmm. Right. I totally agree. There's a, a wonderful organizational development guy that is very controversial. His name is spelled Elliot Jacques, and he's from Quebec, but apparently in America he's known as Elliot Jakes. And um, he has a theory of the requisite organization, and part of his theory is that people at different levels of management need to be able to think in longer and longer time spans as they go up further in you know, higher, higher in the management. So that the, the top levels, the strategic level, is thinking in terms of decades rather than thinking in terms of weeks, hours, and months. And there was a, um, a, a graph in the first Limits to Growth book, and they had, you know, they drew on some studies, some you know, Gallup or Pew polls or so. I don't remember who exactly. And they had this graph, and they had, you know, at one end of the the bottom bar was um, the the present, and at the other end was several generations out, and at the bottom of the vertical bar was, um, you know, myself, and at the top was several generations out, right? And um, there would, you know, like ninety percent of people were clustered in this week myself, you know, and mm. you know, and the next twenty percent, you know, or not. 20%, but the next large group was in, you know, this next month, my family. And one or two people out of a thousand would be out there, you know, one or two generations down the road in time or in uh, the level of people that they're talking about or global, you know, whether it was about the globe or even, you know, their own grandchildren. didn't matter. So I think we need to recognize that our culture, again, it's only our culture that does this has trained us to be um, either fearful or feel powerless about the longer term. 
when in fact we need not be either fearful nor powerless um we do know there's remember that old joke that the the, an optimist is the farmer who plants an orchard in his 80s um (laughs) yeah it's that kind of thing we have that capability we you know it's it's part of being human but we are trained to think oh no you you can't do anything about all of that don't don't think about all of that just think about the moment you know and it's a little hard for, sometimes for those of us who are in the, the world of consciousness and spirituality to reconcile that with the power of now. And it was tough for me because here I was teaching spirituality and here I was a working futurist. <laughs> you know, I don't, how do I reconcile that I am fully in this moment now choosing so that my great-grandchildren's now can be just as wonderful? And how did you reconcile that? For me, it was getting in touch with the, the the spirit level values, if you will, the consciousness that was choosing to uh, experience more love, choosing to experience more joy, choosing to experience more cooperation, choosing to be connected with natural processes rather than to fight against them. And as I found myself choosing in those directions, I became more alive, more healthy. I overcame some, you know, physical issues and began to be more effective in the world and realized that every time I chose that, I was actually choosing in the direction of what my analytical training had shown me was going to be more effective for future generations. So if I choose for the quality of the joy, if I choose for the quality of interconnectedness rather than for the symbol of that quality that this culture has handed me, then I am going to be doing things for every generation to come. Well, I think that uh, there is a really growing awareness of the um, Benefits of connection, benefits of meditation, benefits of developing a spiritual life as more and more people, um, you know, get to the point where they say, okay, I have everything, but I'm not happy. Uh, yeah. Why not? We're yeah. looking for the meaning in life. It was interesting you were talking about a study done in the boardroom. I was thinking of another study done in the boardroom that talked about the use of intuition on the part of the top CEOs and the most successful among them admitted to having made decisions on the basis of their instinct, their gut feel. Mm -hmm. And they really were connecting into that internal GPS that we all have. I love that. I actually was involved in a study of those studies when I was in graduate school. Uh, we called it multiple perspectives in decision making, and the realization was that the, you know the, the usual quote is that the analysis can only carry me so far, but then I have to trust the gut. I have to go inside and see how it feels inside. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to carry on with trusting the gut, but we have to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back on Miriam Knight speaking with Ruth Miller.
perhaps been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. If you're like the 8 out of 10 women that say finding genes that fit is a problem, well, your problem is solved. Lee Genes has done extensive research, and they have genes that fit. There's even an online Lee Fit Finder so you can find the right fit for you. Imagine jeans that instantly slim you with a custom fit and no gap waistband. And guys, kids, Lee has jeans for you too. Click through to Lee's jeans on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page and get what fits. You want HealthyLife.net radio programming everywhere? TuneIn Radio is your mobile solution. The app is available for iPhone, BlackBerry, and Android phones. Search your app store today. Search for TuneIn and take HealthyLife.net radio programming everywhere you go. Dr. Ruth Miller, uh, about really the, the world of the future and how we get to, how we create a future that will be sustainable for us and our children. Ruth, before the break, um, we were uh, kind of hinting at what people need to know in order to create the kind of future that uh, you envision. How are your models and, and how is your institute gearing up to supply that? Thank you. That's a great, great way to put it. We're aware that we're living in a, a, a world that is interconnected through the Internet more than anything else right now. We may not always have that, but we're going to take advantage of it while we do. Everyone is, and we're just delighted to see that. In, in the ideal world of several generations from now, we would continue to have this ability, this inter, interconnectedness that the Internet is, 
and we would be able to communicate globally and learn globally. And so we're moving in that direction. We've launched an online class that is our introduction to our uh, more in-depth classes, which will be a combination of retreats and online, because we, we recognize people are learning around the edges much more. They're not um, engaging in formal uh, academia so much. I, you may be familiar with MITx, where they offer some of the same kinds of materials to freely online, and then people pass, you know, take an exam that is equivalent to the uh, MIT students who are enrolled, um, and they're finding that they're getting brilliant 13-year-olds all over the world. As I understand that one of the 10 people who got a perfect score on one of the high-tech computer courses was a, a 16-year-old in Mongolia. Right. Gosh, so we're yeah. reaching out to that broader group of people around the world who are going, to, who are already resonating with these ideas, and then supplementing that, or in future, as they choose to be more involved with the material, uh, giving them opportunities to come together in groups uh, wherever that is possible, anywhere in the world, to practice some of the concepts, because that's another piece. We most people in Western Empire culture have been trained to learn via lecture. Um, possibly through reading, and what we're, what all of humanity has known for many years and has been showing up more and more in Western uh, research is that there needs to be interaction with the material, there needs to be application of the material, and so we're going to be creating more and more opportunities for that. So that's the mode we're using that we believe is in alignment with the direction we'd like to see things going. And then the material is, as I was suggesting earlier, it's having letting people become aware of options that they didn't know about, whether it's options from other cultures, options from other times, options that have been you know, practiced and, and demonstrated but not made known across um, the world or across global culture. And so we're having a wonderful time bringing together some of those um, options that just you know, people are going, really? It could be like that? <laughs> and we love hearing those words. <laughs> you mentioned this 16-year-old in, in Mongolia. Um, can you tell me what your view is of the children growing up today? Um, I get the feeling that they are scary smart I think we have um, slowed the dumbing down process that education, formal education had become in the world. And part of it is because the Internet gives people access to the material they're ready for when they're ready for it. Uh, we stopped doing that somewhere along the line. I'm going to quote Margaret Mead again. She used to say that her grandmother uh, insisted on providing you know, for Margaret's education so that Margaret would have the opportunity to really learn something. Now, having said that, my kids all grew up in public schools, and we supplemented it with what was going on at home. And you know, we recognized that they were going to follow their path, and they were part of a culture, so we gave them that experience. But nonetheless, we're giving kid, more kids more opportunities to learn more the way they can learn. 
And my experience working with kids is, you know, I've never met a four-year-old who wasn't brilliant, and I've never met a 12-year-old who wasn't shut down in our culture. We've done something in those eight years that we don't need to do. And I think that's begun to change. Another thing that I've discovered is when I get up in front of a group of people and I say, you know, intuition is important and this is how it works. And, you know, when we allow that intuition to, to um, flower and blossom, then we start having, you know, a variety of experiences that we haven't been allowed to have in our culture. And invariably I'll have men and women, but mostly women, come up to me who are 60, 70, 80, and they'll say, I used to have those kinds of experiences when I was a little girl, but it was beaten out of me. Mm-hmm. And just this weekend, I heard you know, someone say that they you know, were told in no uncertain terms, no, you do not see blue sparkles of light around Aunt Greta. Mm-hmm. So we're not doing that so much anymore. You know? The the generation, the, the baby boomer generation and their kids are much more open. Another thing that we're, you know, we haven't done so much of is we haven't filled their minds with quite so much bigotry. I mean, yes, there are many people in every generation who are dealing with it, but um, I've noticed, you know, in my children's generation and definitely, you know, in the, the younger generations beyond them that... They really don't see skin color very much, and they really don't see what, you know, we may have been trained to call mental handicaps or emotional issues in the same way we were trained to see them. So I think that's just beautiful, frankly. Another thing that's emerging is kids are feeling free to express themselves as they are inclined to. I have one uh, one daughter who's involved with a group of people who are declaring themselves to be, you know, gen- gender by choice, <laughs> right? And it's not just male or female, which is kind of fun because um, my 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 children's father, my husband, was a biology major, and we both studied genetics. And one of the things that we learned was there's actually seven different sexual uh, states, seven different genders, if you will. And now maybe the culture is going to come around to that. So I think the young people are freer to be, to learn, to express. And so, yes, brilliance, yes. (laughs) And it's going to make a difference. The other thing I would like to just make a little plea for parents of young children who may be listening and perhaps grandparents, you know, if you get to to influence them as well, to, you know, just encourage that intuition because that is the most valuable thing that they will always have with them. They will always be able to rely on on themselves and and just think what it does for their self-esteem when they they feel that they... um, have have help um, from from beyond in in making their decisions, and it'll give them a level of confidence and a level level of of insight um, that will be absolutely magnificent. You know, when you say that, I'm thinking of Bill Emerson being so clear that we need to listen to that inner wisdom we need to listen to that inner voice that you know we need to not have what the culture says be nearly as important to us as that inner voice you know and intuition teaching from within 
he was very, very adamant on that subject. What was the name of your book on Emerson? Natural Abundance. Right. What I was doing is that was part of our library of hidden knowledge where where we took some of the writings of the 19th century, uh, Emerson, James Allen, Henry Drummond, uh, Florence Scovel Shin, Emma Hopkins, and we created a modern version, uh, you know, so people could understand it in modern terms, and then included the original version so they could make more sense of the original. Fun to yeah, that, that was great fun to, to compare and to look at. Well, we have to take another break. Uh, we will be right back after these messages. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. Okay, so you have a couple of days off and you're planning to get away from stress. You may be planning to go across the world or even taking a staycation around town. Well, Hotels.com can get you a room in over 158,000 hotels, 60 countries for 50% off. That's reducing stress already. Plus, collect 10 nights and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com. All positive talk with a mature edge. HealthyLife.net. Miriam Knight speaking with Ruth Miller about the uh, the Gaia. Ruth, tell me about the Gaia living systems again. Um, is this something that uh, people join as an organization? What is it? Marvelous. Gaia Living Systems Institute is a training institute. We offer classes. People sign up for classes. We're offering right now an online webinar 
that people can find out about on our website, GaiaLivingSystems.org. And when they register, they'll be able to participate in webinars and have access to all past archives. We've only done one official one for 2015, so if someone were to register any time in March or April, they wouldn't be too far behind and they could catch up with the archives. And then uh, towards the end of the year, we'll have um, you know a retreat of those who want to take it deeper, want to begin that hands-on learning that we talked about a little while ago, a weekend retreat, and uh, set up some online support and weekend retreats for future classes. So Gaia Living Systems Institute um, is integrating living systems theory, uh, anthropological culture theories for several of them, um, Jungian psychology to a large extent. In fact, one of our uh, founding members is a former professor of Jungian psychology and literature. And uh, we have as well as the whole new thought, spirituality, the understanding that as we think, so we are, to quote my title of the James Allen book. So, so we're into Someone emerging from this um, uh, coursework, um, how do you envision that they will apply it in, on a practical level? We are already beginning to see people take these ideas into their workplace and into their uh, community activism, whatever that is, and say, hey, look, we have this option. We didn't know we had this option. Can we do it this way? Uh, one of the things that we're including in the training is uh, strategic planning through appreciative inquiry rather than through the old SWOT method that many of us have been using for decades, um, which then completely gives a, a whole new basis for operation in the organization. That's one example. Uh, the use of um, a movement away from a debt-based economy in smaller towns seems to be another piece that's emerging out of this. So we'll, you know, people will take specific things that they can apply, hopefully some specific thing from every class, and as they start to uh, you know, get a broader picture of the whole, some people will go into a community and say, okay, you want to be sustainable? Let's work through this process. We'll start here and we'll end up with a way of being that will en enhance the human experience both internally and externally. And, of course, sustainability um, is not an option, in my view. Uh, sustainability... You're obviously not the governor of Florida right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, by definition, sustainability means we will continue to exist Yep. And there are so many threats um, on our life systems today that uh, really calls that into question. Ruth, put your futurist hat on and give me a little bit of a wrap-up of what you see coming down the pike for us. Uh, are you an optimist? I am, actually. I am just delighted both because of what we're talking about with youth and because of the, what I'm seeing as baby boomers get out of the marketplace. We are seeing more and more people wake up to a state of consciousness that is in alignment with a spiritually and ecologically sustainable life. And at the same time, they're 
the way that systems develop, living systems develop, is that there are there are moments where it's very chaotic and catastrophes seem to be happening. And what I've learned is if we hang on to what was prior to the chaos, the catastrophe and the chaos continues and it seems explosive and awful and terrible. And if we can just release that and find the seed that is trying to be you know, burst into new life in this moment, then that chaotic period can be very brief and we can move into the new cycle of new life, which is a huge part of you know, the theoretical framework we use. As a futurist, you know, I've projected over the years many, many, many scenarios and, and, and discovered many other people's scenarios, of course, because there's you know, a whole profession of futurists. And what I've seen is you could go on almost anywhere on the planet and find one of those scenarios in place, if not several. You know, the, the economic and ecological distress scenario is definitely playing in many places. The high-tech integration scenario is, you know, China is building whole, you know, cl- almost closed system cities and, um, you know, based on a high-tech model that is integrated with an ecological living systems model. Um, there are all kinds, the full range, the full range of scenarios is available somewhere on the planet today. And it's really a matter of choosing the the place and the people that fit the value system you want to be living from to experience the future that um, is most in alignment with those. What one value would you say is the most important to cultivate in order uh, to get us to a sustainable future? recognition that this is an interconnected web of life and an honoring of all the beings in it. Well, that's pretty succinct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been teaching a series of principles in one environment, and that's two of them woven together. (laughs) One of my nothing to the price of one. But really, yeah, we are totally interconnected with all beings, whether it's the ant or the whale or the the beech tree or the, you know, the dandelion. Um, We're all interconnected. And if we, there's a systems principle, you can never do just one thing. You know, to, to touch anything is to begin to pull this complex thread apart and um, going to have some impacts there. And if we can yeah, honor it. Just think about that. The next time you try to, you want to spray your fruit trees, think of what it's going to do to the pollinators. Yeah, the pollinators and to the fruit itself and what the fruit then will be like that will be you know, consumed by children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just another aspect of, of unity consciousness. It really is that we are part of an integrated whole. And we cannot expect to make local um, changes for local benefits without it affecting down the line. Absolutely. Everything we do and say has an impact. And the, the goal is to have the effects of what we do and say be in alignment and in harmony with and enhancing even the world around us for ourselves and for generations to come. 
Okay. How about one last message to the listener? One last message for the listener. Living life fully in the moment from the inside out gives us the opportunity to create a life that works for everyone from the outside in. Beautiful. Ruth Miller and the uh, GaiaLivingSystems.org. Thank you so much for being with us, Ruth. Such a pleasure to be with you, Miriam. Have a wonderful time. Please join me next week when my guest will be Richard Cohen, the publisher of Beyond Words, and we're truly going beyond words into their film business. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I want to um, take your attention to ncreview.com, where the current issue of New Consciousness Review actually has an article by Ruth Miller called 2015 Into the Emerging Culture. Well, thank you for joining us. Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Be good to yourself, do good in the world, and let your light shine.